Chapter Twenty Six of Fighting the Flying Circus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. Fighting the Flying Circus by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Chapter Twenty Six. Captain of the Hat in the Ring Squadron. The Three-Fingered Lake is a body of water well known to the American pilots who have flown over the San Mihiel front. It lies four or five miles directly north of Vignoles and is quite the largest body of water to be seen in this region. The Germans have held it well within their lines ever since the beginning of the war. At the conclusion of the American drive around San Mihiel, which terminated victoriously twenty-two hours after it began, the lines were pushed north of Vignoles until they actually touched the southern arm of the three-fingered lake. Our resistless doughboys, pushing in from both directions, met each other in the outskirts of Vignoles at two o'clock in the morning. Some fifteen thousand Bosch and scores of guns were captured within the territory that had thus been pinched out. With this lake barrier on the very edge of their lines, the Huns had adroitly selected two vantage points on their end of the water from which to hoist their observation balloons. From this position their observers had a splendid view of our lines and noted every movement in our rear. They made themselves a tremendous nuisance to the operations of our staff officers. Frank Luke, the star balloon strafer of our group, was, as I have said, a member of the 27th Squadron. On the evening of September 18th, he announced that he was going up to get those two balloons that swung above the three-fingered lake. His pal, Lieutenant Werner, of the same squadron, accompanied Luke as usual. There was a curious friendship between Luke and Werner. Luke was an excitable, high-strung boy, and his impetuous courage was always getting him into trouble. He was extremely daring and perfectly blind and indifferent to the enormous risks he ran. His superior officers and his friends would plead with him to be more cautious, but he was deaf to their entreaties. He attacked like a whirlwind, with absolute coolness, but with never a thought of his own safety. We all predicted that Frank Luke would be the greatest air-fighter in the world if he would only learn to save himself unwise risks. Luke came from Phoenix, Arizona. Werner's nature, on the other hand, was quite different. He had just one passion, and that was his love for Luke. He followed him about the aerodrome constantly. When Luke went up, Werner usually managed to go along with him. On these trips, Werner acted as an escort or guard, despite Luke's objections. On several occasions, he had saved Luke's life. Luke would come back to the aerodrome and excitedly tell everyone about it, but no word would Werner say on the subject. In fact, Werner never spoke except in monosyllables on any subject. After a successful combat, he would put in the briefest possible report and sign his name. None of us ever heard him describe how he brought the enemy machine down. Werner hovered in the air above Luke, while the latter went in for the balloon. If hostile airplanes came up, Werner intercepted them and warded off the attack until Luke had finished his operations. These two pilots made an admirable pair for this work, and over a score of victories were chalked up for 27 Squadron through the activities of this team. On the evening of the 18th, Luke and Werner set off at five o'clock. It was just getting dark. They flew together at a medium level until they reached the lake. There they separated, Luke diving straight at the balloon which lay to the west, Werner staying aloft to guard the sky against a surprise attack from Hun aeroplanes. Luke's balloon rose out of the swampy land that borders the upper western edge of the three-fingered lake. The enemy defenses saw his approach and began a murderous fire through which Luke calmly dived as usual. Three separate times he dived and fired, dived and fired. Constantly surrounded with a hail of bullets and shrapnel, 
flaming onions and incendiary bullets, Luke returned to the attack the third time, and finally completed his errand of destruction. The huge gas-bag burst into flames. Luke zoomed up over the balloon, and looked about for his friend. He was not in view at the moment, but another sight struck Luke's searching eyes. A formation of six Fokkers was bearing down upon him from out of Germany. Perhaps Werner had fired the red signal light, which had been the warning agreed upon, and he had failed to see it in the midst of all that Archie fire. At any rate, he was in for it now. The German Fokkers were to the west of him. The second balloon was to the east. With characteristic foolhardiness, Luke determined to withdraw by way of the other balloon, and take one burst at it before the Huns reached him. He accordingly continued straight on east, thus permitting the pursuing formation of Fokkers to cut him off at the south. With his first dive, Luke shot down the second balloon. It burst into towering flames, which were seen for miles around. Again he passed through a living stream of missiles fired at him from the ground, and escaped unhurt. As he began his flight towards home, he discovered that he was completely cut off by the six Fokkers. He must shoot his way through single-handed. To make it worse, three more Fokkers were rapidly coming upon him from the north. And then Luke saw his pal, Werner. Werner had, all this time, been patrolling the line to the north of Luke's balloons. He had seen the six Fokkers, but had supposed that Luke would keep ahead of them and abandon his attempt at the second enemy balloon. He therefore fired his signal light, which was observed by our balloon observers, but not by Luke, and immediately set off to patrol a parallel course between the enemy planes and Luke's road home. When he saw Luke dart off to the second balloon, Werner realized at once that Luke had not seen his signal, and was unaware of the second flight of Fokkers coming directly upon him. He quickly sheared off, and went forward to meet them. What Luke saw was the airplane of his devoted pal receiving a direct fire from all three of the approaching Fokker pilots. The next instant it fell over in the air and slowly began to fall. Even as it hesitated in its flight, a burst of flames issued from the Spod's tank. Werner was shot down in flames while trying to save his comrade. It was a deliberate sacrifice of himself for his friend. Completely consumed with fury, Luke, instead of seeking safety in flight, turned back and hurled himself upon the three Fokkers. He was at a distinct disadvantage, for they had the superiority both in altitude and position, not to mention numbers. But regardless as ever of what the chances were, Luke climbed upwards at them, firing as he advanced. Picking out the pilot on the left, Luke kept doggedly on his track, firing at him until he suddenly saw him burst into flame. The other two machines were in the meantime on Luke's tail, and the tracer bullets were flashing unnoticed by his head. But as soon as he saw the end of his first enemy, he made a quick renversement on number two, and, firing as he came about, he shot down the second enemy machine with the first burst. The third peaked for Germany, and Luke had to let him go. All this fighting had consumed less time than it takes to tell it. The two Fokkers had fallen in flames within ten seconds of each other. With rage still in his heart, Luke looked about him to discover where the six enemy machines had gone. They had apparently been satisfied to leave him with their three comrades, for they were now disappearing back towards the east. And just ahead of them Luke discerned fleecy white clouds of Archie smoke breaking north of Verdun. This indicated that our batteries were firing at enemy airplanes in that sector. As he approached Verdun, Luke found that five French spas were hurrying up to attack an LVG machine of the Huns, the same target at which our Archie had been firing. The six Fokkers had seen them coming, and had gone to intercept them. Like a rocket, Luke set his own spot down at the LVG. It was a two-seater machine, 
and was evidently taking photographs at a low altitude. Our Archie ceased firing as Luke drew near. He hurled himself directly down at the German observer, firing both guns as he dove. The enemy machine fell into a vree and crashed just a few hundred yards from our old Verdun aerodrome. In less than twenty minutes, Lieutenant Luke had shot down two balloons, two fighting Fokkers, and one enemy photographing machine, a feat that is almost unequaled in the history of this war. Luke's first question when he arrived at our field was, "'Has Werner come back?' He knew the answer before he asked the question, but he was hoping against hope that he might find himself mistaken. But Werner had indeed been killed. The joy of Luke, over his marvelous victories, vanished instantly. He was told that with these five victories he had a total of eleven, thus passing me and making Luke the American ace of aces. But this fact did not interest him. He said he would like to go up to the front in a car, and see if anything had been heard from Werner. The following morning, Major Hartney, commanding officer of our group, took Luke and myself up to Verdun to make inquiries. Shortly after lunch, the officer in charge of confirmations came to us and told Lieutenant Luke that not only had his five victories of yesterday been officially confirmed, but that three old victories had likewise been that morning confirmed, making Luke's total fourteen instead of eleven and these fourteen victories had been gained by Frank Luke in eight days. The history of war aviation, I believe, has not a similar record. Not even the famous Gunmeier, Fonk, Ball, Bishop, or the noted German ace of aces, Baron von Richthofen, ever won fourteen victories in a single fortnight at the front. Any aircraft, whether balloon or aeroplane, counts as one victory, and only one, with all the armies. In my estimation, there has never, during the four years of war, been an aviator at the front who possessed the confidence, ability, and courage that Frank Luke had shown during that remarkable two weeks. In order to do this boy honor and show him that every officer in the group appreciated his wonderful work, he was given a complimentary dinner that night by the squadrons. Many interesting speeches were made. When it came Luke's turn to respond, he got up laughing, said he was having a bully time, and sat down. Major Hartney came over to him, and presented him with a seven days' leave in Paris, which, at that time, was about the highest gift at the disposal of commanding officers at the front. Among all the delightful entertainers who came over to the front from the United States to help cheer up the fighting men, none, except our own Elsie Janus, who is an honorary member of our squadron, were quite so highly appreciated by our fellows as the Margaret Mayo YMCA troop which gave us an entertainment just a night or two after this. The players included such well-known talent as Elizabeth Bryce, Lois Meredith, Bill Morrissey, Tommy Gray, and Mr. Walker, all of New York. After a hurried preparation, we cleaned up one of the hangars, prepared a stage, and made a dressing room by hanging a curtain over a truck and trailer. After a merry dinner in 94's mess hall, everybody crowded into the theater and the way the boys laughed and shouted there, during the performance, must have sounded hysterical to the actors. But to my mind, this hysteria was only an outlet for the pent-up emotion and an indication of the tension and strain under which we had so long been living. At any rate, it was the best show I had ever seen at the front, barring always the one evening Miss Janice appeared on our aerodrome for an entertainment. The night of September 24th, Major Marr returned from Paris, and announced that he had received orders to return to America. Shortly afterwards, Major Hartney handed me an order promoting me to the command of the 94 Squadron. 
my pride and pleasure at receiving this great honor i cannot put into words i had been with ninety four since its first day at the front i was a member of this the very first organization to go over the lines i had seen my old friends disappear and be replaced by other pilots whom i had learned to admire and respect and many of these had in turn disappeared now but three members of the original organization were left reed chambers thorn taylor and myself and I had been given the honor of leading this distinguished squadron. It had had Lothbury, Jimmy Hall, and Dave Peterson as members, and it led all the rest in numbers of victories over the Huns. But did it? I walked over to the operations office and took a look at the records. I had a suspicion that Frank Luke's wonderful run of the past few days had put 27 squadron ahead of us. My suspicions were quite correct. The sober fact was that this presumptuous young 27 had suddenly taken a spurt, thanks to their brilliant Luke, and now led the Hat-in-the-Ring squadron by six victories. I hurried over to ninety-four quarters, and called together all my pilots. The half-hour we had together that evening firmly fixed a resolve in the aspirations of ninety-four's members. No other American squadron at the front would ever again be permitted to approach so near our margin of supremacy. From that hour every man in ninety-four squadron, I believe, felt that the honor of his squadron was at stake in this matter of bringing down Huns. At all events, within a week my pilots had overtaken 27's lead, and never again did any American squadron even threaten to overtake our lead. After a talk that night with the pilots, I went over and called the mechanics to a caucus. We had half an hour's talk together, and I outlined to them just what our pilots proposed to do with their help. And they understood that it was only by their whole-souled help that their squadron's success would be possible. How nobly these boys responded to our appeal was well proved in the weeks that followed. Rarely indeed was a dud motor found in 94 squadron henceforward. Never did a squadron of pilots receive more faithful attendance from their helpers in the hangar than was given us by these enthusiastic air mechanics of the hat-in-the-ring squadron. I honestly believe that they felt the disgrace of being second more keenly than did we pilots. Finally, I had a long and serious conference with myself that night. After I had gone to bed, I lay awake for several hours, thinking over the situation. I was compelled to believe that I had been chosen squadron commander because, first, I had been more successful than the other pilots in bringing down enemy airplanes, and second, because I had the power to make a good leader over other pilots. That last proposition caused me infinite thought. Just how and wherein could I do the best by my followers? I suppose every squadron leader has this same problem to decide, and I cannot help but believe that on his decision as to how he shall lead his pilots depends in a great measure the extent of his success, and his popularity. To my mind there was but one procedure. I should never ask any pilot under me to go on a mission that I myself would not undertake. I would lead them by example as well as precept. I would accompany the new pilots and watch their errors and help them to feel more confidence by sharing their dangers. Above all, I would work harder than I ever did as a mere pilot. There was no question about that. My days of loafing were over. To avoid the red tape business at the aerodrome, the making out of reports, ordering materials and seeing that they came in on time, looking after details of the mess, the hangars, and the comfort of the enlisted men, all this work must be put under competent men, if I expected to stay in the air and lead patrols. Accordingly, I gave this important matter my attention early next morning, and the success of my appointments 
was such that from that day to this I have never spent more than thirty minutes a day upon the ground business connected with ninety-four's operations. Full of this early enthusiasm, I went up on a lone patrol the very first morning of my new responsibility, to see how much I had changed for the better or the worse. Within half an hour I returned to the aerodrome with two more victories to my credit, the first double-header I had so far won. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.